Well, good morning, everyone. So glad to have you here joining with us this morning. Before I jump into this morning's message, part two of our Upside Down Kingdom, I just want to say happy birthday to Pastor Tim. He's the best boss in the world, and we hope that you have a great day. I think he's getting close to 50 years old. I think that's what it is. But Tim, happy birthday, buddy. Now, let's jump right on in here. And let me ask you this. Have you ever been told to do something you hated to do? Not asked to do, but told you had to do? When I was a teenager, I lived with my grandparents for a year after my parents divorced. And my grandpa was very strict about whatever my grandmother made, we had to eat. It didn't matter. Whatever was on the table, we had to eat. And they grew their own garden in the backyard of their house. And grandma would cook some foods or make some foods that I absolutely did not like. Now, my grandma was an incredible cook. If you've ever had, like, say, Ann Dunn's cooking, that's the type of cooking I'm talking about. She could make anything taste good. But I got to tell you, I hated lima beans. Hated them with a passion. But my grandfather said he didn't, he didn't ask us if we were going to eat them. He told us we were going to eat them, my younger brother and I. Or have you ever given expectations you knew would be next to impossible to meet? This sermon is one of those expectations from Jesus that is not a suggestion, but a proclamation of how God expects us to live. Today's message, in all honesty, seems to be one of the most, if not the most, difficult teaching from Jesus that any of us could ever try to live up to. I would even say impossible in our human strength, but possible with God's help through His Spirit. So me personally... I would rather own a cat, and if you know me, you know how I feel about cats, or eat spicy Mexican food than do what we're looking at today and what Jesus is teaching us to do. Jesus' teaching is upside-down thinking in our world, always has been, and I believe until his coming, always will be. So let's do a little review. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, just real quick here and, and take a look at some of the things Pastor Tim said last week. Right away in verse 1, let's look at the audience that Jesus is speaking to because that's very important to what he's doing. First of all, we call this the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is on a mountainside and there are a group of people, followers at this point, that are listening to him. This is not his 12 disciples yet. Now, most likely they were there in the audience, but they hadn't been announced yet as the 12 disciples. And he goes in in verse 2 and it says, Jesus begins to teach. Now, this is really important because when we see the word teach here, this describes repeated and habitual actions. And this is what he's telling us that God expects of us and the way we should live if we're true followers of Christ. Pastor Tim last week spoke about the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes is Jesus' way of pronouncing a blessing on people who thought they were out of options that were out of hope. Now, I want to point something out here that I think is really important myself. Jesus used his voice in a strong way to teach the crowd. He spoke with energy, projecting his thoughts with earnestness, with urgency. That tells us that this is very, very important. And this is why we consider this the greatest sermon ever. I want to note this, that some people portray Jesus as soft-spoken, sort of wimpy in nature. Just because Jesus preaches love, people naturally think that uh, he was wimpy in nature and very soft-spoken. That is not the case at all. Matter of fact, Charles Spurgeon says this, Jesus spoke like a man who had something to say which he desired his audience to hear and feel. Now, 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us how to live. And with this message, Jesus declares what his kingdom was all about. It presents a radically different agenda than what the nation of Israel expected from the Messiah. His message does not present the political or material blessings of the Messiah's reign that they'd hoped for. So what do I mean? Instead, it, the message, expresses the spiritual implications of the rule of Jesus in our lives. This great message tells us how we live when Jesus is our Lord. Now, a popular assumption among the Jews in the first century was that the Roman oppression would be shattered and there would be political peace and mounting prosperity for them. I believe many people on some level or another believe that if you proclaim Jesus as Lord, you'll prosper materialistically, you'll be healthy physically, and nothing bad will happen to them. And that is not true. That is simply not true. I believe that the Sermon on the Mount was the core of Jesus' message, a simple proclamation of how God expects us to live, contrasting with common Jewish, or for that matter, modern-day Americans' misunderstandings of that life. You can also regard this as Jesus training the soon-to-be 12 disciples who had not been announced yet the message he wanted them to carry to others. So again, I remind you of that word teach in verse 2. It's describing what should be repeated and in that way become a habit. So, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them up, whether it's on your phone or whatever way you're doing this, open up to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to begin our reading at verse 43. So, we're teaching about, here it is, love for enemies. Jesus comes out and he says this, You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you were kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, Jesus continues in his sermon to interpret the law. So a question to ask here is, who does he think he is? Who is he to interpret the law? Here's the answer, very simple. He's the lawgiver. Verse 43, we look at this and he says, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor. Now, this is coming from the Mosaic law found in Leviticus 19.18. And then he goes on and he says, and hate your enemy, which is not found there, by the way. But I say, love your enemies. Now, some teachers in the days of Jesus added an opposite, an evil misapplication, an equal obligation, so to speak, to hate your enemy. If you ask me, that seems pretty reasonable. What Jesus is saying seems absurd. I think love your enemies is the most unreasonable thing Jesus says in all his teachings. Seriously, Jesus, what about, and you could fill in the blank, of all these enemies. I thought Jesus knew everything and understood everything, but it seems here that he's kind of missed the boat a little bit here. So, who do we see as our enemies? Who do we believe are our enemies? I reflected back on this, and I remember in my teen years that I had some enemies in school. One of them was a bully. His name was Lyle. 
Lyle, I, it was tough to be around him. I don't like bullies. Bullies are in every school. We know this to be true. And if you're a bully, I feel sorry for you. I really, really do. But you're someone's enemy. Matter of fact, you're probably a lot of people's enemy. But Lyle was one of those. He was my enemy. And then there was this guy I played. His name was Steve. He played on, we played on the football team together and the basketball team and high, all through high school together. And he was an antagonist to me. He was my enemy to me. Then I grew up with three brothers. And come on, if you have siblings, probably many of you can relate to this to know that your brothers or your siblings can become your enemies at certain times of your life growing up. And then there were my parents. Watching them fight growing up until they divorced as a young lad, I felt like I was being ghosted in my own home. I felt like I, w I didn't even exist. It was already tough enough being the third of the four of us boys. It's like I didn't exist that way, okay? But with them fighting all the time and putting all their focus on what they didn't love about each other and them looking at each other as each other's enemy, I just uh, I felt non-existent. And so I saw them as my enemy. Then as I became an adult, I mean, think about it from this perspective. You can understand this. All us adults here pretty much for the most part can remember 9-11 and what happened. Tell me, how these terrorists, how are we to love the Taliban? How are we to love the members of ISIS? Or for that fact, the latest person who shot up the school or church or movie theater. Then there are those who don't have the same worldview as us. We don't see eye to eye. And because we don't see eye to eye, nowadays, you can't agree to disagree. Because if you don't agree with somebody, my goodness, you're an enemy. And then maybe, maybe based on your political preference, maybe your enemy is a Republican or a Democrat or the Green Party or an Independent. Or maybe it's a family member who in your lifetime in some way hurt you physically or emotionally or relationally. To which we would say to Jesus, come on, Jesus, you don't know my family and what they did to me. Uh-uh, come on, you're missing something here. Now, to the Jewish audience Jesus was speaking to, their enemy was the Gentiles, a group of people that were different from them. And a Gentile was anybody, anyone who was not a full-blooded Jew. You could even have half Jew in you or a partial Jew in you and you were still considered by them as an enemy. So Jesus and his audience lived under an oppression occupying Roman government and the Romans employed torture and murder to keep people in line. So everyone listening to Jesus talk about love your enemy stuff had plenty of opportunities to experience I hate you with every ounce of my guts enemies in the soldiers and prefects which are the ruling authorities of that time that carried out their daily social domination. Now I've put a lot of thought into what Jesus says here, and I think there's an exception to the rule here. I think we all look for those exceptions when we don't like something, and I think I found something. You, you just have to read between the lines. I think Jesus would agree with me wholeheartedly when I state after a deep theological study of this passage that there are two things we're actually allowed to hate, or allowed to consider our enemies. The first one is snakes. I hate snakes. As a kid, I remember I went in a neighbor's yard and I went to pick up a, a grass snake and I went to the bathroom all over my hand and ever since I've just had this fear of snakes. Last week, my daughter and I were watching a movie and I had some snacks in a box and I was eating away at, eating away at it and the main character caught me totally off guard. A snake came right up on them like this and it scared me so much my reaction went just like this <laughs> and the snacks just come flying out of the box and down onto my sofa and the floor. And my daughter and I got a great laugh out of that. 
but I hate snacks. I mean, no, snakes. I love snacks. <laughs> so now look, in Genesis 3, we know that Satan spoke through a snake to bring about the fall of all mankind. So I think Jesus would accept snakes as enemies that we don't have to love. Now the second one derives its name from Satan. I did a deep look into the name Satan, and I, I discovered through many hours of study that if you take the first three letters of Satan, you get sat, and you discover that cat rhymes with it. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, when you look at cats, they look like little demons. Their eyes, I mean, they, they make me think of that they're demons. Well, now you know there are two things you can hate. And if you want to send me an email, you can send it to thughes at gptopeka.org. Now, loving our enemies is a foreign concept. Love and, love and enemies are words that seem mutually exclusive. Putting the two together just doesn't make sense. Truth be told, you and I know when we don't like a truth told or taught to us, we look for loopholes. But Jesus doesn't give us any, period. Now, we just celebrated Easter two weeks ago. Why did we celebrate Easter as Christians? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. And without the resurrection, we don't have a hope or a prayer of salvation at all. And the fact is, Jesus knew when he was teaching this that he had many enemies and that eventually he would be crucified. He told his disciples three times he would be crucified. And they didn't listen to him. They didn't believe him. What I'm trying to say here is Jesus is not being a hypocrite here. He knew he had plenty of enemies and yet he taught Love your enemies. A few chapters later in Mark's account, Jesus is approached by a religious teacher of the law and asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And this is found in Mark 12, 31, to which Jesus replies, and let's take a look at Mark 12, beginning with verse 29. Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Luke records on another occasion that Jesus was approached by an expert in the religious law and asked the same question. We find this in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And knowing what was soon to happen to him, Jesus didn't make any exceptions to what he had previously stated on love your enemies. This time, Jesus replied, So what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? To which the man quoted, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, which he was quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 9.18. But in verse 29, it says the man wanted to justify his actions so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? I see this man, like I see many people, as a loophole finder. And then Jesus gives his answer. And we're going to take a look at verses 30 through 37 as Jesus tells a parable that many of us, if not all of us, are very familiar with, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's dive into that. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, a Jew, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Then a temple assistant, 
another Jew walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man, and if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. And the man replied, The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, Yes, now go and do the same. We look at verse 33 and we see this word put, put next to the Samaritan, despise. Jesus is making an important point here. Two Jews passed him by, his own people. And the one to help him, the one who Jesus is telling the story is the true neighbor, is the despised Samaritan, the enemy of the Jews. Now who here watching this would admit that I'm a loophole finder? You just try to justify your actions of why it's okay to not do what God says to do, what he expects us to do and the way we should live. I know I am at times. I know I am. Because there's some teachings, to be honest with you, like this one. Like I've already stated, this is, to me, one of the hardest teachings. There are some teachings that are just, they're just too difficult. I can't wrap my human brain around them. So let me ask you this question. Why would God have to make a law telling his people to love your neighbors. Neighbors implying maybe your enemies? I think the answer is this. God knows the human heart. He knows from firsthand experience how his creation acts. So Jesus asked this religious leader, who is the neighbor in this story? And the, and the Jewish man says this, the one who showed him mercy, who showed pity, who showed compassion, the Jewish man did not deserve to be helped by a sworn enemy at all. And people would have understood that story if it didn't end up that way. But I think, doesn't it seem ridiculous that God would have to make it law? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Well, here's the question. So if I'm you, I'd be saying, okay, Pastor Frank, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, here's how Paul in Ephesians answers this in Ephesians 6.12. Let me give you an overview here of Ephesians. Paul is writing to the Christian church in Ephesus to explain the great theme and doctrine of Christianity. Oh yeah, by the way, Paul wrote this letter from prison. Paul had plenty of enemies. So in the first three chapters, Paul spells out in glorious detail all that God did for us freely by his grace. The things that this is, grace is what we don't deserve, but yet he gives it to us. Now, in chapters 4 through 6, Paul brings a call to live rightly, but only after he reminds us of all of what God has done for us. So why wouldn't we want to live rightly for God? When we really understand how much God has done for us, we should naturally want to serve and obey Him out of gratitude. As Paul is concluding this letter, he makes it clear who our real enemy is. In verse 11, Paul is telling Christians how to stand firm against the real enemy, the, against the devil and all his strategies by putting on the full armor of God. So let's take a look at Ephesians 6.12 and what Paul says here. For we, and who is we? You and me, 
are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, that is, humans, the ones that Jesus is telling us to love here, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So Paul uses many different terms to refer to our spiritual enemies. Their purpose is to knock the Christian down from their place of standing. So please hear this fact. All these spiritual enemies are under the headship of Satan who comes against us. Don't lose that. So, now that we've talked about this, what are Christians supposed to do with this? What is the application that is there for us? First of all, going back to what we just read in Ephesians 6.12, recognize the true enemy. Recognize the true enemy. We have over the years softened what Satan looks like. And in many TV shows or movies, we make him kind of look like one of the guys. That he's perfectly okay. There's, there's nothing really bad about him. He just got a bad, a bad rap. That's what we've done. But he is our true enemy. And he uses his minions to do his work, guys. We need to recognize who the true enemy is. Now, for the other parts of our application, let's go back now to Matthew chapter 5. And let's see what Jesus says here. He says, love your enemies. And again, who's he talking about? He's talking about humans, flesh and blood. And then he says, be kind to your enemies. In verse 47, in being kind to your enemies, in returning good for evil, you may cause them to repent and change. And by the way, Lyle and Steve, the bully and the antagonist, they became my friends later in life. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Verse 48. When we look at that, we can say, are you serious, Jesus? No one can be perfect. The fact is only God is perfect. The word perfect in the original Greek means complete. It comes from a primary word meaning to set out for a definite point or goal. So Jesus is saying for us to make it our goal to love like our Heavenly Father loves. And then... We know from the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, 37, that we're to show mercy. Jesus brought, brought us to the issue of mercy repeatedly. Everyone wants mercy. Everyone. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Of course we want it. Giving mercy requires us to give up revenge and hand the judgment part to God. Loving our enemies doesn't mean to allow them to continue to hurt us. That would be failure of loving ourselves as God loves us. We can do what is in our control to protect ourselves while trusting God to step in. And then in verse 44, he says in this, the latter part, pray for those who persecute you. We can always pray for our enemies. Praying is an act of mercy. Praying is loving like our heavenly father. Praying changes our hearts. I'm not talking about please give that person what they have coming to them prayers. But I also don't mean that you need to spend an hour each night asking God to pour blessings upon them either. There's a way to pray both for justice and for the hearts of those committing injustices. If you hate in your heart for somebody, maybe it starts this way. God, I hate that person and I don't want to because you don't want me to. As C.S. Lewis has said, Prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. Praying for your enemy opens you up to the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And then, 
Jesus is telling us to forgive our enemies. Martin Luther King Jr. in his book, Strength to Love, states that forgiveness is the decisive factor in how much you can love your enemy. And I fully agree. When Jesus looks at his executioners from the cross and offers forgiveness, can there be any doubt of his love for them? Loving your enemy does not mean you have to add them to your Christmas list or make them your best friend. It doesn't mean you excuse their actions. It means you forgive them with the knowledge that God is both merciful and just. Jesus faced grave injustice with sacrifice. Through prayer and forgiveness in our hearts, let us go forth to conquer injustice in our time by the courage not to demand retribution, but rather to repay injury with blessing and hate with love. I'm not saying this is easy to do, and neither is Jesus. Jesus knows what we are going through. He truly understands our pain. Without question, this is upside-down thinking and actions. Remember that Jesus is telling us how we are to live and how God expects us to live. So, as hard as this teaching is, are you willing to join me in obeying our Savior? Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive. Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Father, this is only possible with your help. Whatever enemies we have in our lives, we entrust them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.